Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. We're doing it again. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Murphy, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. And here we go once again to talk about the Bills and the beer. I got to say right off the top, very fortunate to be able to talk about the Bills these days, both here on the podcast and on game days. You know, thought went through my head last Saturday night. The Bills playing New England last Saturday night, they had a comfortable lead, and you, know, you don't have time to really ruminate much to uh, speculate on what's going on or to think that much about other things besides the play-by-play, but the Bills had a comfortable lead late in the game, and I got to thinking how lucky I am and how much I love doing play-by-play for this team, this Bills team. Yes, they're winning. I mean, I love it when they weren't winning too, by the way, but it's really special to be a, a witness and a reporter on site at games like last Saturday, the huge party at Highmark Stadium when they won. It was amazing last Saturday night, an amazing atmosphere. It was cold. <laughs> Make no mistake about it, 5 degrees, 7 degrees. We have our windows open in our uh, broadcast location, the Van Miller broadcast uh, pod at uh, Highmark Stadium. As cold as it was, it was ridiculously fun. It was a festival. The cold weather added to it, yep. Belichick and the Patriots on the other sideline, that brought a lot to it. Obviously, the Bills' uh, tormentors for most of the century so far. And there were remarkable plays by the Bills. I mean, the first touchdown pass, Josh Allen to Dawson Knox, an amazing play. Looked like uh, Allen was just going to throw it away. He thought he was throwing it away. Dawson Knox went up and caught an amazing touchdown. And shortly after that, the interception by Micah Hyde, He's playing uh, deep safety, right? Uh, the lone safety back there had to cover the whole field. Somehow he turned, ran to his right, and with his back to the play, with his back to us, kind of blocked me from seeing it, with his back to us, he made an amazing basket catch. Somebody said it was kind of like Willie Mays against Vic Wirtz in the World Series, the, the amazing catch in the polo grounds in New York. Couldn't see it. Couldn't see that he had it. But he made it. He made the catch, wiped out New England's first uh, potential scoring drive, and I think turned the game. An amazing play by Micah Hyde. Uh, and there was a game full of amazing plays, great performances. Another touchdown by Dawson Knox, a couple of touchdowns by uh, Devin Singletary. Just a great night. It's tough to put it behind you, isn't it, if you're a Bills fan? You don't want to if you're a Bills fan. But if you're a Bills player, you absolutely have to. And I think most fans will get there by the time this Sunday's game comes around. As much fun as it was last Saturday night, there's much more to come. We're going to talk about that with one of our guests on uh, today's podcast. My friend Steve Tasker, former Bills wide receiver, special teamer, seven-time Pro Bowl performer. He's on the Bills Wall of Fame. He makes his home here in western New York. Broadcaster now. He was co-host with me of One Bills Live. He's still there doing One Bills Live. And he knows what it was like to play on teams that won in spectacular fashion. Yes, the Bills won in spectacular fashion last Saturday night. Tasker was on teams that won games like that and had to go on in the playoffs and play the next week. For instance, the greatest comeback in NFL history, the uh, January uh, uh, 93 season. The Bills won an amazing comeback in in a game against Houston. It was 92 season, 93, uh, January 93. An amazing comeback win, NFL record comeback against Houston. But you know what? They had to play again six days later. They went to Pittsburgh and advanced. That's how the NFL playoffs work. You have to move on. As much as you celebrate each victory, as much as you cherish each victory, you know you'll think about that game for years and years, that game last Saturday. they got to move on. They have to move on. We're going to talk with Steve Tasker about that 
on the podcast today. Our beer guest is veteran beer executive Steve Villani. He is president of Global Beer Network in Massachusetts, a new uh, deal for importation and distribution of Sullivan's beer all over the country, all over the U.S., all 50 states. It's a big deal for Sullivan's. Uh, Sullivan's is going to be the first Irish beer in Global Beer Network's portfolio, mostly Belgian beers and other European beers. We're going to talk with uh, Steve Villani about that, how Sullivan's fits in to his portfolio of beers and how it works in the beer business. So the Bills head to Kansas City this weekend, a Sunday game, 6.30 p.m., a rematch of last year's AFC Championship game, a rematch of October 10th, Week 5 of last regular season in the NFL. The Bills with a convincing win at Arrowhead Stadium that day. The Chiefs have changed since then. They were 2-3 and three after that game. They have gotten better. Certainly they've gotten better. They have a better defense, for example. Just playing much better, pass rush better than it was. Just play overall better defense. Um, but it's not a great defense. Certainly does not compare to what the Bills have done defensively all season long. And uh, that's going to be an interesting uh, counterpoint in the game. On offense, Kansas City, of course, Patrick Mahomes in that high-powered offense, the tight end Travis Kelsey, wide receiver Tyreek Hill, they're all dynamic, uh, great playmakers. The Bills will be challenged. And the thing that got me, you know, watching Kansas City's win against Pittsburgh last Sunday night on TV, the Chiefs, and we knew this, but it really was hammered home. It jumped off the screen at me. They have team speed. Both sides of the ball, offense and defense. They can run. They've got a lot of guys who can just run and really fast run. Uh, We're going to talk more about the Chiefs and the Bills and this matchup as we continue on in the podcast. Next up, Steve Tasker as Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff continues. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff, and on the line with us now, a good friend of mine. He is a former Bills wide receiver and special teamer. He's on the Bills Wall of Fame, seven-time Pro Bowler, and I used to work with him. He remains the co-host of One Bills Live. Great to have Steve Tasker on the line with us. Steve, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Murph. It's good to see you again. There's a lot to talk to you, with you about, including uh, your job last Saturday night. You were on the sidelines for Westwood One Radio for that remarkable Bills win over the Patriots. Uh, it was a great atmosphere. It had to be really fun down there on the on the sidelines to hear all that noise, huh? Yeah, it, you know, Murph, it's it's been a couple of decades since they had a full house for a playoff game like that, yep. right? So yep. it was it was pretty special. And they and they pulled out all the stops. The the player introduction of the lights out and the stadium lit and the fireworks the way it was. Um, Jim and Thurman doing the you know the legends of the game chant. Um, the the way the game started out, the way it went, it was it was pretty electric, and uh, there was, yeah, there was I, I've I've talked about this with people. I, I think it's one of those moments that people are going to remember for a long, long time, like the comeback game, like the fifty-one to three game, um, wide right, you know, you name it, like the hit world around the world with Mike Stratton. I mean, that game is going to go down. I, you know, the Taron Johnson pick six. Yeah. Um, it was. It's a historic game. It was a moment. Bills fans. It, it goes on. You know, it goes in the scrapbook for Bills fans. It's one of the ones that I'll always remember. You know, during the radio broadcast last Saturday night, I mentioned this to uh, uh, Eric Wood. I said, uh, "51 to three. That's the closest uh, parallel to that game. It was a dominant performance in both cases by the Bills before a big jubilant crowd. I mean, uh, and I think uh, that game Saturday night, 51 to three, the AFC Championship game, and the comeback game." 
might be the, the top of the heap, the pantheon of great Bills victories of all time. What do you think? Yeah, I think this one's right up there with it because uh, obviously the 51-3 game sent the team to their first Super Bowl. So there's, there's that big deal about it. But this was against the Patriots too, you know. Right. So it's got its own, it's got its own significance there uh, that was a huge cathartic experience and, and plus the emphatic nature of it. Um, was huge for Bills fans of this generation, no question about it. And you know, and the, and the comeback game, same thing. I mean, those three all are, are a little bit different, but they're all big moments for an entire generation. I think, I think there's, you know, you don't have to feel bad about putting, you know, this this wild card round playoff victory against the Patriots right up in there with some of the great wins of all time for the team. Now, you you talked about the atmosphere, and you talked about Jim and and Thurman in the end zone doing their thing, and. There's so many alumni in attendance, you included. Um, it's it's kind of fun to see uh, the alumni, especially the Super Bowl era alumni, return uh, quite often this season, right? I mean, obviously you want to be around when the team's winning, but uh, it feels a little bit like that Super Bowl era, doesn't it, the way this team's played this year? Yeah, it does. Um, you got some truly great players that are playing at a high level. Um, and it's, you know, there is something about playing in Buffalo that gives you a kinship with the people who live here. Um, you know, you got John guys like Will Wolford and John Fina coming back, you know, Daryl Talley, of course, and, you know, Jim and Thurman and we, and me, we all live here. So, uh, there is something special about it. And of course, you know, even Ryan Fitzpatrick turns up in the stands, you know, with his kids and, and he went to the game. Yeah. And he went (laughs) to the game, you know, this is typical Fitz, but it says something about not just him, but everybody, um, Fitz goes to the game with his neighbors that he lived in the neighborhood with when he was playing here for four years, you know, they're friends. So there's a, something genuine about the atmosphere in Buffalo and the relationships that's, you know, that come from it. Um, and I think it makes it totally unique. Fitzpatrick is an original Steve. I'll tell you, and you've been in our booth and, uh, second half begins third quarter. I feel a slap on the back of my head, right in the middle of a sentence. I'm describing play by play and I turn around and it's Fitz. I mean, he just smacked me in the middle. <laughs> I guess it was yeah. his way of saying hello. Well, I was kind of busy, you know, it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's totally unassuming. Um, and, uh, you totally, you know, total friendship, total bro to be, you know, hanging around and, and to have him come back. And, you know, it was his kids who inspired it. his kids grew, you know, were born here. They grew up as Bill's fans. This is where he had his first and longest stint in his career. It's been one year here, two years there. Uh, but Buffalo was a four year stint where he was the guy and it, and it, he burst onto the scene as an NFL quarterback and, and it has sustained him throughout. So I, uh, there's no doubt he has a real connection to this city and this organization. Help me out here, Steve, because in the late stages of last Saturday's game, I was trying to articulate uh, what it is about uh, the fans and, and this team this year. Uh, there, there certainly seems to be a bond, a connection between this group, and it's been a couple of years now, and this and this fan base. Uh, can you can you identify what it is? Why are they so tight? I mean, to see uh, Josh Allen going the entire perimeter of the stadium when the, and the season ended that way. And then he almost did it again the other night. There's a connection between these two groups. Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> I've said this a ton, Murph, that, you know, Bill's fans are different because they seem to have a level of um, a camaraderie with each other, not just the team, but with other Bill's fans. Because, we are, you know, you're from Western New York and there's not that many people and you go out all around the world and Buffalo's a kind of a punchline still. <laughs> it's a small little town that gets too much snow and it's cold, you know, all that stuff. So people commiserate with how, how much fun and how much they love this city. So there is a level of affection between the fans. Likewise, this team, one of the hallmarks of it has been how much these guys love each other, how much friend, how friendly they are. You know, 
Josh Allen playing video games with Steph before they'd even met in person and having, you know, and, and formulating, you know, uh, cultivating a relationship that goes beyond football. You hear it from everybody on the roster. So that the fact that the fans are like that, the team is like that. It, it seems like a great combination of affection that the fans also have for the team and the team for the fans. They appreciate these people. They appreciate the traditions of the old guys being there on the, in the corner of that end zone. Uh, they appreciate the, you know, the social media and, and how people reach out to each other and look out for each other and the fans outside the stadium in the tailgating and how important that is to the event. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of things in that recipe that makes this a unique place and a unique relationship between the fans and the players. You talked a lot about the, the celebration Saturday night at Highmark Stadium. There was happened to be a football game going on too. And uh, just your observations on the Bills' uh, big win, the, what, a 30-point win. One thing, Steve, it struck me during the course of the game, and everybody's pretty healthy now, but it struck me how many weapons, how many tools Brian Dayball has in his toolbox these days. I mean, he can go a million different ways on offense right now. Yeah, they've got, and they rotated all the wide receivers yeah. through the through the rotation. They got all those guys in, got them all repetitions and touches, and and I think that's one of the interesting things about it. No question now, and I don't want to take the shine off that win because Josh was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Devin Singletary, the offensive line, and the defense coming up with a couple of interceptions and just totally stonewalling the the Patriots. But uh, it was evident early on that when Josh flexed after that first drive, and then you had, then you had uh, the interception by Micah. The Bills went right back down and scored again. That was it for the Patriots. Their body language, they were deflated. Their si- I was on their sidelines on the, for the whole first half, uh, up and down that, you know, from goal line to goal line. Right. They were done. And I think that's what really came out as that game wore on. The Patriots just wanted that game to be over. And it happened very early. And I think that was a, combination of two things one the quarterback of the bills and two the quarterback that the patriots knew they had in their offensive firepower that they did not have they weren't coming back in that game right. not against the number one defense in the league and they knew it and that game got you know got to be 47 to 17 because the patriots wanted that game to be over now <laughs> josh's last incompletion in the game was with 12 minutes plus in the second quarter left. He didn't miss another pass the entire night. I mean, he hammered him, and so did the rest of the team. So there was that as well. The Bills were playing at a high level. But, man, oh, man, uh, you know, in a game like that, it takes two teams, and the Patriots were the other team. The Bills were pouring it on, and the Patriots were were done with their season. I I don't like to, you know, heap too much praise on anybody, including Josh, but – I'm amazed. He seems to get better almost on a weekly basis still, Steve. I mean, right. Rookie year, oh. the first year, you get better and you get a little bit better the next year. But this season, right, he's still getting better almost on a weekly basis. Murph, you think about the rhetoric that was surrounding this game before it happened. You know, the December 26th game, the second game there in Foxborough between the Bills and the Patriots, Patriots media, players, and I know their coaches were saying, there's no way Josh Allen can play, put together another game like that yeah. back-to-back. There's no way he can do that. Not only did he do it, he upped it. He was way better in the wild card round of the playoffs than he was on December 26th when he was wearing a cape and coming out of the <laughs> phone booth like Superman. He was yeah. better He's in better. the wild card round. And they didn't think he had that in the, in the tank. He, they didn't think he could duplicate the other one. He not only duplicated, he was better. Um, I think 
that was unbelievable. It was absolutely unbelievable. Um, he answers his critics better than any quarterback I've ever been around. Um, he puts it out on the field, and man, oh man, did he shut some people up on Wild Card Weekend. A great win, a remarkable win for the Bills, and more games to play, right? I mean, everybody's celebrating the Patriots, us included. You went through this during your Super Bowl run with the Bills. You'd play, like, the greatest comeback in NFL history. You still had to play the next week. How does a team put that aside and get ready to, to move on? How do the Bills kind of uh, focus on the Kansas City Chiefs now? Well, you start you, – you let it go and start – looking ahead you know what do you got to do today to get ready for for another game you know what do you got to do today and you kind of put that out of your mind you get you get caught up in the preparation for your next game that's what you do you don't really spend time jumping up and down and cheering for how well it went on saturday night uh they've got things they need to do and they're gonna be they're gonna be put their mind on into doing those so it'll take your mind off it pretty quick because you're working towards the next one bills fans don't have anything to do except wait but the players have got lots to do and that'll keep them occupied um, they'll stay busy and, you know, let's face it, they're going to start watching film on the chiefs and it's not going to be, it's not going to be as pretty as it was against the new England Patriots. So they're going to know that they're going to feel it. And there's this sense of finality to it as well. You've got to play well and you've got to be really, really ready, uh, or your season's going to be over. Uh, the, the bills know what that's like to go into Kansas city and have their season end. Um, so they're going to have that taste in their mouth as well to go in and, and, and prepare for this game. So uh, for the fans, you think, you know, you can't get enough of it. You wish there was another game tonight, but the players are focused on uh, other places. They're going to be, they're going to be thinking about practice. They're going to be thinking about, um, they're going to be thinking about the preparation, the film and the game plan. So um, it, you just, the routine of it takes over, the intensity takes over and the task at hand takes over. So they'll, They'll be focused on next week, and I'm sure they already are. How much can they focus on uh, week five, October 10th, when the Bills went to Kansas City and handled them pretty well? It's not as easy as let's just duplicate what we did that day, right? Yeah, no, I'll tell you this. I think those old game films, um, for the players, they're all about remembering who the guy is, what, what it was like playing against the guy physically, what it was like to hit, get hit by him, hit him, what he was saying to you. The, how good he was, what you got away with in that game that you didn't get, that you might not have got away with. What, and then for the coaches, it's in, incredibly important for this, Murph. Coaching staffs get an insight as to what the Chiefs, like the Bills coaches will get an insight as to what the Chiefs thought about their offense at that time, what they thought about the Bills defense, how they decided to attack them in that week. Uh, now, certainly the Bills are a little different and the Chiefs are very different as well but it gives an insight as to what their mindset is when they game plan that helps you prepare for what they may do this week. It gives you an idea of what they saw you as at that time. And, you know, you self scout, you do all this stuff uh, and it gives you a heads up, say, listen, if they're, if they think this about us now, here's how we should defend them. Here's how we should attack them. And it gives you some confidence going forward that you kind of have an insight as to what they think about you. See, in the mindset of a team like where the Bills are now, and again, you played during the Super Bowl era, and as we look back on the Super Bowl era, you know, there's a sense of inevitability. Well, of course, they beat them, and then they beat them, and of course, then they're back in the Super Bowl. But in the moment, I, I wouldn't think players think like that, right? You can't think like, like, we'll beat them, and then we'll go on to the Super Bowl eventually. No, but think, no, no, not at all. I mean, think about it. It's been 12, 13, 14 weeks since they played them, you know, week five, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they had a bye week and 12 more games and then a playoff game. So yeah. it's been a long time. 
Um, you look back, the offensive line was completely different back then. Uh, you had different guys hurt and injured in and out of the lineup. And the Bills came in with a chip on their shoulder from the AFC Championship game as well. And the Chiefs were like, they were struggling back then. They're not struggling now. So it's a completely different uh, game and, and game plan. Uh, the atmosphere is going to be up a notch, no question about it. And uh, we'll just uh, you just have to kind of wade into it and, and take it one problem at a time. You just put your game plan in and get it right and practice it until you can't possibly get it wrong. Uh, and if you can do that, um, you got a chance to win. But you got to, I've said it a ton, Murph, the Bills were good enough to beat the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game a year ago. But you got to play well on game day. Yeah. You can't show up and not play your best. The Chiefs played bad for two months and then played their best game against Buffalo. Buffalo played great for two months and played their worst game against the Chiefs, and it was a two-touchdown loss. Yeah. Hey, one more thing, and I'm going to change subject here because this is your area of expertise. Every week when I prepare to do a game, I look at stats, look at the opponent's stats. Okay, who's their leading receiver? Who's their leading? And I always look at who, who leads the team in kickoff returns, and then I think, who cares? I mean, kickoff returns, the whole part of that game is just gone now in the NFL. Give me your thoughts on that. I guess it's safer, right? Fewer injuries, but I think it's a kind of a dynamic piece of the game that's that's missing. And it wasn't that long ago where it was a really important part of the game. Right. And 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 the league has tinkered with it. Now they didn't make a concerted effort to keep the foot in the game. They want to keep kickoffs on as a part of the game. And if they want to, particularly now, I think there's probably uh, some justification for for putting kickoff returns back in the game. They could move the kickoff back five yards and keep the same alignments that they are now, and it would be safer than it was before they made the changes, and they would get a lot more kick returns because it's just too far of a kick, particularly late in the season. So you would get more strategy, and you'd get fewer guys because of the alignment adjustments they've made in this last uh revamp of the kickoff, the changes they've made, make it m less possible for players to be running in opposite directions and hit each other without anybody trying to avoid the hit. Right. right so right. Um, they could do that. But I think as the season has gotten colder, now it is harder to get the ball to the end zone. They are getting a few more returns. Um, and I think the fact that there is a chance that at some point you're going to have to cover that kick and make it count uh, is still a part of the game. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is some adjustment that they could make with it. And with the new alignments, it'll still be safe enough uh, for football and, and even for the critics of the game to, to be okay with it. Um, I don't know that it'll happen, though. Yeah. Hey, Steve, thanks for this. I always learn a lot from talking to you. I miss talking to you every day, but this has yeah, been man. great to catch up. Thank you. Great seeing you, Murph. Thanks. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. John Murphy here with a special guest. He is the president of Global Beer Network in Middleton, Massachusetts. Steve Villani is our guest. Steve, thank you very much for coming on with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Great to be here. A new deal announced uh, just recently between Global and uh, Sullivan's Brewing Company. Can you tell us what's, what's involved there? Yeah. So we are uh, predominantly European beer importers. And I had the pleasure of meeting Michael Mead a couple of months ago in the middle of the summer, had a couple of beers with him, liked him very much, found out, found out what he did. And most importantly, got a chance to try the Sullivan's brands and loved them. And uh, we kept in touch over time. And uh, last week we signed a contract to be the exclusive importer for Sullivan's in the country. So we're really excited about that. 
And the way it's explained to me, it is great news for Sullivan's because you can uh, you can bring the beer over and you can distribute it all over the country. Basically, you have relationships with what hundreds of uh, distributors all over the country. Yeah, two hundred and twenty, and we're every every inch, every corner of this country, including uh, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, and even the the Virgin Islands. Tell me, you know, the classic, uh, I guess, beer system in the U.S for years now, decades has been the brewer distributor and then to the, to the market, to retailers, bars, taverns, or even stores. Where does global beer network fit in, in that configuration? Yeah, well, we act as the, we do everything that let's say a, an American craft brewery would do right here in the country, except for brew the product. So there are a lot of unbelievable European worldwide brewers that don't have the wherewithal to have a sales team and have a warehousing facility and have the ability to license their products in all 50 states in this country. So we do that all for them. We purchase the beer from them. We mark it up. We license it in the states where it's going to be sold. We have relationships with distributors to bring it in. We sell it. We have relationships with large uh, restaurant chains liquor store chains, supermarket chains, where we can go and sell this product even for our wholesalers. So it's a it's a great deal for the individual brewers that don't have the wherewithal to do it. And it's certainly a great deal for us as well, because we get a chance to sell some of the world's best beers. Steve, your background, I know you spent uh, a long time with uh, the biggest of all beer companies, Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis, right? I did. I, I was actually an AB guy before the InBev deal. Oh. And back then, I spent 17 years with Anheuser-Busch and loved every second of it. Every, I really did. Uh, it was a, a family-operated uh, company. We were treated exceptionally well. Uh, I have nothing but good things to say about Anheuser-Busch. I don't know enough about AB InBev, or I do. Maybe I just don't want to talk about it. But I, I, I can tell you that uh, uh, my experience with Anheuser-Busch was top-notch. And since then, some 14 years with uh, Global, five times U.S. importer of the year. Obviously, things are going well, and, and you guys are doing a good job there at Global Beer Network, right? But yeah, well, you know, I, I consider myself to be extremely fortunate. We have a great team. Our sales team, our operations group, One of the we're one of the only importers that, that owns and operates our own warehouse. So we can tailor make every order specifically for that wholesaler. Uh, you know, we, we work very, very hard to win those awards and we're very proud to uh, have had the, op- the opportunity to win them. Looking over Global's, uh, I guess, uh, a list of beers that you deal with, it seems like your specialty is Belgian beer, right? And it has been, that's how you, the Global got started, huh? That is correct. So we purchased the company from two Belgian expats, and it's kind of a great story. They they had a 16-year-old daughter who wanted to be a movie star, and they took a well, – every 16-year-old kid does. <laughs> well, they took a trip to Santa Barbara, California, and fell in love with it, went back home, sold their business, and started Global Beer Network in 1994 and were wildly successful. I and mean, they really did do an amazing job. That – 16-year-old girl is now incredibly successful. She owns two uh, very large production companies in LA. And uh, uh, you'll probably, uh, it's called Joke Productions. Okay. Wildly successful business. Wow. Even without beer. Uh, Two of your uh, premier brands, Belgian beers, I want to ask you about each of them. Uh, Tell me about Stiegel and and its, uh, its popularity in the United States. 
Right. It's uh, Stiegel's actually from Austria. We signed a deal with Stiegel a little over two years ago, and it fit our per portfolio perfectly because we didn't have anything that was quite like a Rattler. And for those of you who don't know what a Rattler is, it's basically uh, a 50 to 60 percent of the product is a, a fruit soda. And the rest of it is either a lager or you can you can blend it with wheat beer as well. So it's very refreshing, easy to drink, lower in alcohol, so you can really uh, drink quite a few of them. They uh, or quite quite uh, quite an abundance of them rather, and you know they fit our portfolio perfectly because we didn't have anything like that in our portfolio. So it's been a a great marriage. They're our largest volume brewery for the moment. And another uh, uh, beer that uh, Global's involved with, and I read about it on your website, I kind of got lost in the history of Chimay, a, a Belgian brand, which you describe as a heritage brand. Tell us about Chimay. Well, Chimay is actually, it's a Trappist beer. And uh, by Trappist means it is brewed within the walls of an active monastery, uh, brewed in Chimay, Belgium, which is in the very, very southern part of the country. It's right on the French border. And the story is amazing. They, 90% of their proceeds go to charity. So they they use 10% for upkeep of the uh, monastery itself. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But most importantly for us, I, I really do believe it's uh, it's one of the best beers in the world. If you haven't tried Chimay, uh, you're, uh, I, I, I highly encourage you to do so. It's something very special. So tell me how Sullivan's or in general, I guess, the uh, beers brewed in Ireland, how does that fit into your portfolio? Well, one thing we do as an importer when we're looking at brands, we make sure we don't cannibalize what we already have in our portfolio. So if we have a Belgian triple, and we do, we believe we have the best Belgian triple, a product called Parat, I'm not going to look for another Belgian triple. So when I met Michael Mead, who is the CEO of Sullivan's, I was interested immediately because we don't have anything in our portfolio from Ireland. And we always look to some of the best brewing uh, countries in the world. And Ireland certainly is one of those countries. So I liked Michael. I liked the packaging. I love the name. But most importantly, we sampled a couple of Sullivan's and I was sold immediately. And one thing I like a lot about Michael is he does not waste time, right? Uh -huh. He gets things done, done very quickly, and that's how I work. So very shortly after we met, we found ourselves, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this thing, and we're gonna do it right. And we it didn't take long for us to come to an agreement. So this is the Sullivan's podcast, and I'll give you the opportunity now to do a commercial for Sullivan's. <laughs> what what do you like about Sullivan's? Why why do you think it's a, a quality product? There is a lot of extreme flavor in there, right? And in, with a real quality beer, there shouldn't be. It should be well-balanced, easy to drink, with a hint of flavor in one direction or the other. When I tried the red, I was really blown away because it has a really nice smoky presence to it, but certainly not overwhelming. A great beer should be balanced. So when you're done drinking one, you want to drink another and another and another. That's what I got out of the red. That's certainly what I got out of the gold as well. I think their blonde is a fantastic beer as well. So uh, we're, we're lucky in that, hey, it's always nice to have a great brand, but when that great brand has great liquid that comes with it as well, 
um, you're you're in you're in good shape for the future. Steve, obviously you're in the beer business, but it strikes me you're a lot of what you do is logistics, right? Getting beer to uh, the market, um, whether it's importing sure. it from Europe or getting it out to the market in, in what all fifty states in the U.S. Very much. What does that mean? You're a trucking expert, or how do you how do you especially in the COVID days? How do you get the product out to the market? Well, once again, we have some great people that manage this for us. We we order the beer. We have relationships with ocean freight companies and and uh, freight forwarders uh, in Europe that get us loaded onto containers. We ship that beer to the to one of uh, five ports within the country, depending on where the beer is going. A lot of it has been coming through the port of Boston. Thank goodness uh, that that. A lane has been pretty clear with the whole supply chain issues we've been having. So we've been taking a lot of the product in through Boston, shipping it in trucks across the country. So we have a lot of partners that that we work with to book this freight. However, just like everything else, the cost of freight, whether it be ocean freight or ground freight, has skyrocketed over the last year. So we, we, we've absorbed about 200% increases in ocean freight, and that's our number one line item on our on our PL. So it's mm-hmm. been it's been a big challenge, but thank goodness we had a huge uh, volume increase in 2021 that offset a lot of that loss on the shipping. Steve, would you consider Sullivan's and and most of the beers you deal with are they are, are they classified as craft beers? Would you think? Yeah, definitely they're craft beers. They are. Uh, imported craft or imported specialty, definitely craft craft uh, uh, brewers. All of all of the beers that we work with. And I was reading uh, something the other day that mentioned that uh, about a quarter, twenty five percent of all beers sold in the United States are craft beers. And and they they mentioned that that number is is pretty flat, not going up too much, not going down. Is that your understanding of where craft beer is headed in the U.S.? Yeah, craft beer has been has been a little bit um, uh, flat over the last couple of years. I think the introduction of a lot of uh, flavored uh, alcohol seltzers have cut into a lot of that business, but th- this segment is certainly not going away. When you look at the categories, we're actually we are uh, categorized as an import, but we are craft made, if you will. But when you look at sales reports, we're actually a, uh, an import, but it's hard to tell based on that designation because we, there are so many large uh, imports that skew the data as to how we're performing. But I can tell you, our, our beers being in the specialty import market are doing very, very well. And the future of that market, especially with some of the competition you faced, uh, where do you see it going? Uh, what, what do you think? I think what, and we've seen this quite honestly over the last five, six, seven years, is that those brands that have performed well and have been become recognizable to the consumer are doing very well, but there aren't as many of them on the shelf. Back in the early 2010s, you would see a lot of our brands, we would have 80 brands on the shelf. They all had a little bit of shelf space. Now we'll have 12 brands on the shelf but the shelf space has actually increased. So those that win, those that make it out the other side of the tube are doing extremely well, but there are, there's been a lot of fall off of a lot of secondary brands in the marketplace. And I, I think that's where it's yeah, going. 
I wonder what you think too about, I mean, Sullivan's is sort of a, a classic beer. Many of your European imports are classic beer, lager, whatever. Um, much of the beer brewed in America today is, you know, watermelon flavored and cotton candy flavored. Uh, is there, is there room for the classic beers and ales? Do you think moving forward? There will always be. And I bet my, my, my life savings on it. I bet my, <laughs> bet my entire life on it, uh, but I truly believe it. I think when you have a classic product, yeah, you'll have trends that come in and they'll do well and they may nip at you a little bit. But if you have a classic, well-made product, no matter what industry you're in, you're safe for the long term. And, and uh, you look at some of our brewers, you know, they were uh, we have brewers that were founded in the 1500s and they continue to perform and perform well. And I don't have uh, there's no indication at all from where I sit that that's going to stop. Steve, I got to mention, we're, we're talking to you from your office in, uh, in the Boston area, Middleton, uh, Massachusetts, and you seem to be holding up all right in spite of the Patriots uh, drubbing at the hands of the Bills the other day. It was a drubbing. I was at a party. <laughs> I was at a party, and we all gave up. We really did give up early. It, it, was, it was so it, – it, to me, it just looked like there was one team out there that wanted to play and wanted to win. The other team didn't. So, I, I, you know, I am a big Patriots fan, I've got to say. However – the better team won. The more prepared team won. The team who wanted it more won. And I, I'd like to see Buffalo uh, perform well in the rest of the playoffs. Yeah, me too. <laughs> hey, Steve, thanks for this. I've learned a lot. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Well, that's our show this week, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank our guest, Steve Villani of Global Beer Network in Massachusetts. Some really interesting insight into the imported craft beer business. Of course, they have a new relationship with Sullivan's. I'm sure we'll hear more about that as the weeks and months move forward. Thanks to Steve Villani of Global Beer Network for that. I want to thank my friend Steve Tasker. Always interesting to talk football with him. He's an expert on kickoffs and kickoff coverage, obviously, based on what he did in the NFL, and he had some interesting takes on that. But being on the sideline in last Saturday's game, the win over New England, I thought, gave him a unique perspective on just exactly what that was like at uh, Highmark Stadium on Saturday night. We are sponsored and brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company in Kilkenny, Ireland, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. It's available all over Buffalo and Bills Country, upstate New York and downstate in New York City, in Jersey, in Boston, Massachusetts now, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, Columbus, Cleveland, Ohio, in Atlanta, Georgia, down in, uh, in Carolina, in Tennessee as well. Of course, many other locations in the works, thanks to the new deal with Global Beer Network, soon to be available all over the United States, all 50 states. You can look for it pretty soon all over the country. I want to thank our producer, Pat Felbaugh. Another great job by him. We'll do another show next week, regardless of the outcome of the divisional round playoff game in Kansas City on Sunday. We're having too much fun to stop now, right? Who knows? Maybe we'll be talking about the Bills in their second consecutive AFC championship game, getting ready for that next week. They have to win in Kansas City to make that happen. We'll talk about it next week. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the beers.